Good evening. When you looked in your bulletin tonight and you saw the title of this sermon, you might have thought to yourself, don't we already know this? We as Christians routinely confess that Jesus is the Messiah. We do that in our creeds, our statements of faith, and also in our regular observance of the Lord's Supper, as we did this morning. And all that kind of begs the question, why does the Bible, and why do we, keep repeating such a seemingly simple point over and over and over again? I think that tonight's passage helps answer that question because it shows that even the strongest believer will, at times, face trials that call very basic beliefs like these into question. And fortunately for us, the Bible also illustrates God's promised blessings to all those who persevere in faith. Our passage tonight comes from the Gospel of Matthew, which was written by the Apostle Matthew, or Levi, as he was also known. And the central message of Matthew is that Jesus is the Messiah, whom the Old Testament promised would come from the line of David to bring salvation to God's people by atoning for their sin. By the time we reach our passage tonight in Matthew chapter 11, Matthew has already built a persuasive case for Jesus' status as the promised Messiah. Matthew tells us that Jesus is descended from King David. He tells us about how John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus' ministry, fulfilling the promise of a prophet crying out in the wilderness from the Old Testament. Matthew tells us about how Jesus ministered to the Gentiles, fulfilling the prophecy that a people dwelling in darkness would see a great light. He also famously relates Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7, uh, where Jesus demonstrates his comprehensive understanding of the Old Testament law and also imbues it with a fuller meaning that leaves his audience astonished. And then finally, in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew tells about numerous miracles performed by Jesus. He heals the sick, the blind, and the mute. He calms a storm. He casts out demons. And he even raises a girl from the dead. But after all of that, we start to see in chapter 10 of Matthew's gospel a certain shift in the narrative. Jesus sends out his 12 disciples, telling them to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He gives them authority to cast out unclean spirits and to heal every disease and every affliction. But he also warns them that they're going to be facing persecution. He says that he's sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He tells them to beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. He also warns them that brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. Clearly, being a follower of Jesus is going to have its costs. And it's against this backdrop of growing opposition that we come to tonight's passage. One of Jesus' followers, John the Baptist, finds himself in prison, just as Jesus has predicted. John has been arrested by Herod Antipas, who rules Galilee as a client state of the Roman Empire. And he's been in prison because he has rightly condemned Herod for marrying his sister-in-law in violation of Leviticus 18. As John sits in prison, he's no doubt confused as to why he's being punished simply for doing what is right, for preaching repentance as God had commanded him. And so with that, let's pick up in Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse number 2. You can find this passage on page 816 of the Bibles provided in the pews. Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 2, 
And again, we're on page 816 of the Bibles provided. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As we think about this passage, I want to consider three things that Jesus accomplishes through his response to John the Baptist. And these three items will form the outline of tonight's sermon. First, Jesus confirms that he is indeed the promised Messiah. Second, Jesus corrects John's worldly expectations and our worldly expectations about what the Messiah should be like. And third, Jesus provides comfort to believers like John who find themselves in the midst of suffering. We'll study these three points under the alliterative headings of confirmation, correction, and comfort. And I'll repeat each of these headings as we reach them, like I'm going to do right now with our first heading, Confirmation. John the Baptist's messengers ask Jesus a really stark question, don't they? They ask whether Jesus really is the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament. It's a stark question in part because John himself has already said that Jesus is the Messiah. John didn't have the benefit of Matthew chapters 1 through 10, so he didn't have the full list of evidence, perhaps, that that we do. Uh, But we know that John, when he previously encountered Jesus, referred to him as the Son of God, as the Lamb of God, as the one who had baptized with the Holy Spirit. We also know that John has heard by word of mouth about Christ's most recent miracles and teachings while he's been in prison. But now John seems to be wondering if Jesus really is who he claims to be. John, like so many believers who face difficult circumstances, is tempted to question Christ's goodness and perhaps even his divinity. Matthew Henry wrote that the remaining unbelief of good men may sometimes, in an hour of temptation, strike at the root and call in question the most fundamental truths which were thought to be well settled. In his time of suffering, John the Baptist, just like us, needs a clear reminder of Christ's person and his qualifications. And a clear reminder is just what he gets. Jesus responds in verses 4 and 5, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. When Jesus reminds John of all the miracles that he's performing, he's invoking the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, and in particular, the prophecies of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 29, God promises that in spite of Israel's rebellion and the entire world's rebellion against, ju- against God's just rule, he will send a Messiah to redeem a people for himself. Then the process will transform the entire order of the world. Isaiah prophesied that in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see, and the poor among mankind shall exult and the Holy One of Israel. Later on in Isaiah, in chapter 35, which we studied this morning, God again promised that the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. 
And then in Isaiah chapter 61, the promised Messiah, speaking of himself, says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus is already fulfilling all of these prophecies through his earthly ministry. And notice one other thing that Jesus says to John the Baptist. He says that the dead are raised up. We see one particular example of this in Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus raises the daughter of Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue. In this particular part of his response to John, Jesus is probably invoking Isaiah 26, where Isaiah prophesied, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Isaiah prophesied a bodily resurrection of God's people, and now Jesus is already starting to bring it about. And so through his response, Jesus assures John and assures us that he is the promised Messiah. He can satisfy the punishment that's due to our sin, and he can raise us from the dead. And in the process, Jesus addresses some misconceptions that John and many of Jesus' other followers apparently have about the Messiah, which brings us to our second point, correction. In this passage, John seems to be wondering to himself and even wondering out loud, if Jesus really is the Messiah, then why am I, why am the greatest of all the prophets and the one who prepared the way for Jesus sitting here in jail? Why do Jesus' enemies all seem to be flourishing? John probably believed, or at least hoped, that the Messiah would bring immediate blessings to those who followed him, and immediate judgment on those who didn't. But notice that Jesus doesn't respond by promising John immediate justice. In fact, we know from Matthew chapter 14 that John the Baptist will ultimately be executed by Herod. Nor does Jesus promise John that he's going to overthrow the Roman Empire or establish any sort of political kingdom. Instead of offering any such promises, Jesus actually offers John a mild rebuke in verse 6 when he says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. We could paraphrase verse 6 perhaps by saying, Blessed is the one who accepts Jesus as he has revealed himself. For those who do that, for those who accept Jesus, God promises blessings that are far greater than anything we or John the Baptist could even imagine. A moment ago, we read Isaiah's vivid prophecies about the blessings that God will pour out on his people, regardless of how poor or sick or downtrodden they seem to be in the here and now. And the Bible continues on with these promises throughout the New Testament. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.9 that, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And then in Ephesians 1, Paul writes that, In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And so the Bible not only dispels our mistaken expectations about the Messiah, it replaces them with better, more accurate expectations. The reality of Jesus was far more wonderful, beautiful, and comforting than anything John the Baptist had imagined. Which brings us to our third and final point, comfort. And to that end, I want us to think about just a few reasons why we can draw comfort from Christ's response to John. First of all, we can take comfort in the fact that Jesus doesn't judge people by their outward appearance or their abilities. 
Because Christianity recognizes that all people are created in God's image, it also recognizes the equal worth of the sick, the disabled, and the impoverished. A more naturalistic worldview might judge people by their perceived physical or intellectual or financial capabilities. But Jesus never did. His compassion for the sick, the weak, and the poor led genuine believers in his day to honor and trust him. And it still does today. It's important to keep in mind that Christ's miracles weren't simply random acts of kindness. They were a means to prove his divinity, to draw believers to himself, and to pour out to them the far greater blessing of the forgiveness of sin. Another reason that we can take comfort in Jesus' response to John is that it shows God does not abandon those who love him, even if they may occasionally and sinfully question God's love. When we find ourselves doubting God's goodness in times of trial, it doesn't somehow disqualify us from presenting our petitions to him. We can still ask our God for strength to endure whatever trials we face and can also ask him for patient faith in his providence. John kept reaching out to Jesus in his time of trial, and so should we. And finally, we can take comfort from Jesus' response because it shows that God keeps his promises. And I'd like us to think about that as we conclude. God the Father fulfilled his promise to send the Messiah. And so we can be confident that he'll also fulfill all the promises he's made to us, his church. He will fulfill his promise to raise us from the dead by virtue of Christ's work on our behalf. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. God will also fulfill the promise that Jesus just made to his disciples here in Matthew chapter 10, that the one who endures to the end will be saved. Even if we occasionally doubt his providence in times of difficulty, God will raise us up at the last day if we persevere in faith. And finally, God will fulfill his promise to create a new heaven and a new earth where sin and all its effects will be no more. As God promised, and as we read in Isaiah 35.10 this morning, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to be our promised Messiah. Thank you for his perfect life and death on our behalf. Thank you for raising him from the dead to sit at your right hand and to serve as a guarantee that you will also raise us up at the last day. When we face trials, help us to follow Christ's example by pouring out our complaint before you. Guard us against doubt and unbelief and help us to dwell on the beauty and certainty of the promises you've made to us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.